You're listening to Drek FM. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me as always is Matthew Rushing. Matthew, how is it going this week? It's going pretty well this week, Chris. Uh, it's actually kind of slow, not too much going on. I'm uh, going away for the weekend, though, uh, with some guys on a kind of just kind of a retreat to get away. So I'm looking forward to that, but... Otherwise, uh, not a bad week. How about yourself? Yeah, it's been quite a busy week for me here. There have been so many things going on, and uh, I wish I had more time to read, but I did manage to get some comic reading in. Uh, Speaking of which, we've gotten a pretty good response to last week's show, where instead of interviews, we actually talked about comics the whole time. And uh, I think people enjoyed our speculation, anyway, on where things might be leading into the next movie. Although I kind of have a feeling that we may be wrong, but we'll find out in the coming months. That is pretty true. I mean, with these comics, uh, and I think even just with the, the movie itself, there's a lot that we don't know. Um, you know, JJ's really good at keeping things uh, quiet and, uh, you know, behind closed doors. And so I think we're all going to be surprised, honestly, once the movie finally comes out. But yeah, I do think that I this think so. comic is going to give us some uh, background information that we have been hoping for. So we'll see. Well, we'll see. Uh, Until then, let's jump into some book news this week. And the first story that we have up here is related to David R. George III's allegiance in exile. And he was recently talking about this to StarTrek.com. I was really excited to see this. Uh, You know, the book just came out uh, this last week on uh, Tuesday. And so he was just talking about this is a really fun story to be doing. Uh, It takes place uh, during the final year of uh, the Enterprise's first five-year mission under Kirk. And uh, Kirk just being in command and and finding that this is actually going to be his fourth anniversary as captain. Um, And so... Seeing that time period for Kirk and what's going on, but uh, I was really actually excited to see this, that uh, actually Lieutenant Sulu is going to be playing a large role in this book. I don't want to spoil anything, but this was on StarTrek.com. I thought it was pretty interesting, and so I'm just hoping that sometime Sulu will say something like, Oh my, Captain. (laughs) I'm sure he will, and it'll be wonderful the way it's written out in the book with all the extra O's and the extra Y's. Exactly. I mean, it's how it has to be. Um, Maybe they could use the same chip that they're using in Federation the first 150 years to enhance this novel. You know, I was thinking that, you know, I can't understand why you wouldn't have George Takei record an oh my, because, I mean, well, it's George Takei and that's just a... That's just what you want to hear these days from Sulu <laughs> somehow. And so maybe we'll even hear it in the new um, JJ movie. Who knows? Yeah, you you really need that. Now, the storyline of this book was alluded to somewhat 
in the motion picture and in the novelization by Gene Roddenberry. So I'm looking forward to seeing how this all plays out. Uh, I don't have my hands on this book quite yet, but I'll be picking it up on my Kindle. Yeah, I have it on my uh, iPad, ready to read it. Um, I just finished up another book this afternoon, so I can get to this now, and I'm really excited to be doing that. Uh, It's been a while since I've actually visited the uh, 23rd century and Kirk's Enterprise in this kind of time period, so I think it'll be fun. There's a lot of books coming out in this time period uh, and this uh, upcoming year, and so it'll be kind of a nice return to some old friends, I think. It definitely will be, and in the interview... George also mentions the first book of the fall miniseries uh, that he's going to be pinning, which uh, takes us back to Deep Space Nine. And uh, that won't come out until September, but I'm always looking forward to any new stories about Deep Space Nine. So um, if if anyone's interested in reading the entire interview, you can go over to StarTrek.com and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Now, another thing that I'm interested in, Matthew, that doesn't get enough attention really is Enterprise. And uh, Trek Movie did an interview with Christopher L. Bennett recently, and he talked a little bit about a new Enterprise book. Yeah, his new book is called Rise of the Federation, um, which has been announced as as a novel, and it's going to be taking place in that time period uh, after the Romulan War and, and just really the beginnings of the Federation. And um, during this time period, too, we know uh, the Enterprise is decommissioned uh, because it was heavily damaged in the battle, gets turned into a museum. Um, and so it's going to be a very interesting thing because uh, the crew, it seems like it's going to be partitioned off into different crews. You know, it's they're not all going to be together anymore. Um, we do know later on that Archer becomes Federation president and things like this. So really hoping that uh, as Chris works through this time period, he's going to get to write a several books here. But his first one will be out in July. And he did this great interview with them. And I don't really want to give away too much of it. But honestly, it sounds fascinating. Uh, and from anybody who knows Chris's work, he's done a lot in kind of this forgotten history era, uh, whether it's Ex Machina and the... Um, motion picture era or the buried age with um, Picard and his era between the stargazer and being the captain of the enterprise. Mm -hmm. Um, So these kind of areas, he has a lot of familiarity with. And what really excited me in this interview, and I do want to mention is that he said that he rewatched the entire series and he found a lot of things in there that he was really liking so this is really encouraging to me because I, I think you might agree with me. You know, rewatching this series now, I find I love Enterprise more and more every time I see it. Um, so I'm really excited that he's feeling that way and that they've given him this uh, opportunity to explore this, really, this strange new world. We, we've never really been in this part of uh, the Star Trek universe. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, I liked Enterprise when it was first on, but I will admit that I do like it even more when I watch it now. And I think a lot of other people feel the same way. I am starting to see a bit more love online for Enterprise. Um, As I always say, I think that that show needed time. I mean, it needed separation in time for people to stop thinking of it as the next Star Trek series. And they wanted to continue on TNG, DS9, Voyager. They wanted to continue to live in that 24th century 
world. And instead, they got enterprise and they kind of tuned out. I think now, you know, 10 years later, and with it being available on Netflix, uh, we have it here in Japan on Hulu as well. Um, we have it in HD, which is quite nice, even before the Blu-rays come out. People can revisit it just as a TV series and as a Star Trek series. And I think people are starting to love it a lot more. Now, the thing that does disappoint me is that we never really got to see that birth of the Federation. And I'm really glad that Christopher Bennett is exploring that in these new books. Uh, The Romulan War, of course, has been dealt with. And then the rise of the Federation here definitely parts the story that I'd like to see filled in. And had the show gone seven seasons, this is the kind of stuff that I think we would have gotten to see on the screen. Well, and I think this is one of the things that uh, honestly would have made for a great Enterprise movie. Um, Just these are the kind of stories that are just big and massive in the Star Trek universe, never been touched. And and this is the kind of thing I think a lot of us would have liked to see. But very glad that Pocket Books has decided to really explore this part of the universe, uh, this time period. And really fill in this gap. I mean, this is one of the things that the books do well. Uh, We heard this talking to Keith the Canado and some of the other authors really talking about how the books can fill in those uh, time period gaps and and give us that piece of history that makes things make more sense. And uh, I think this is one of the best parts of the literary universe. Yeah, this is also good news because about a year ago, maybe a bit more than a year ago, there was a lot of concern amongst Enterprise fans that Pocketbooks was abandoning Enterprise in the literary world. Uh, in fact, uh, one of our writers, Shanna, wrote a piece that's on Trek FM that, uh, expressing concern about the fact that word from Pocketbook seemed to be that Enterprise was kind of being put to rest. So this is wonderful to see. Uh, great to see this revival. Well, and it's true. I, I had the same uh, reservations when I when I saw that they had taken the Romulan War book series, which was supposed to be a trilogy, and turned yeah. it into two books. Yeah. Um. The 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 end of the trilogy or the duology, excuse me, was was good. Um. But you could tell that they had had a lot more that they had wanted to do, and it just was not the same. And so, um, I'm very thankful that uh, Pocket has done this. And I think, honestly, it can only be helped that Enterprise is going to be released on Blu-ray, which I'm super excited about. And I think that that is really going to help the book sales as people get to find Enterprise all over again. Um, And so, I, I think that this is definitely something that Pocket can capitalize on. And so, I'm glad that they will be getting this out to us in July. Most definitely. I've already pre-ordered my Enterprise Season 1 Blu-rays, by the way. I haven't yet, uh, but I have a gift card to Best Buy, so I'm just going to be getting it in that way when it comes out. But uh, I'm saving that bad boy. <laughs> Hopefully the price will uh, will come down. Yeah, they they came out first at... Well, they, they're listing for $119, and then Amazon had it for 85 and I just pre-ordered it anyway. I thought, you know, the price is going to come down. I'm not going to actually pay 85. It's already come down to 77, so I'm hoping that it's going to get down to like maybe 59 by release time so people can, you know, really pick that up. 
Yes, I totally agree. You know, this will actually be the first Star Trek Blu-rays I own, except for the Next Generation films. Um, I haven't bought any of the other uh, Star Trek Blu-rays yet. And so, but I saw Enterprise coming out and I thought, I have to have this on Blu-ray. So It's going to be nice. I'm looking forward to the extras as well, because there's a lot of background about that show that, you know, we don't know that I'd love to see filled in. And it does seem like they're going to actually uh, be giving us some blue, uh, Blu-ray extras and, and DVD extras that are yeah. completely worth it. And so yeah. I'm very some excited. Some new stuff, right, that we don't have on the existing DVDs. That'll be great. Well, let's jump over. We have a very short news segment today. Uh, let's jump over into comics for just a moment and talk about Countdown to Darkness again, which we did a lot last week. But what we're going to talk about today is actually an interview that was done with uh, Roberto Orsi and Mike Johnson, where they talked about the the process of doing the series and the types of things that having this little comic miniseries enables them to do that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. Well, I loved this interview because um, one, they just talked about the value of, of rediscovering comics and the way that they can really help any kind of film or just as an art form, you know, comics are are really, I think, in resurgence right now. And um, the fact that, uh, you know, uh, getting them on the New York Times bestseller list uh, as a Star Trek comic was huge. Um, And so one of the neat things about this is that they talked about in this interview, you know, Countdown really had to do what generations did, which was pass the baton from the prime universe to this new JJ universe. And they had to really deal with that. And in fact, most of the comic actually takes place in the prime universe. And right. so now they get an opportunity to start in the JJ universe and stay in that universe and just really set us up for the film in that universe with those characters. And I think that that's what's making this really exciting and as we talked about last week we had a huge response just between the both of us and what we thought about the comic exactly and like you said countdown which led into the 2009 movie took place almost entirely in the prime universe and in this interview mike johnson says that in this one rather than showing the backstory since 2009 established everything on screen This time in Countdown to Darkness, they're able to show the backstory. And he says they are really setting the table for the next movie here in ways that the original Countdown couldn't because we hadn't met the new Kirk and Spock yet. And he says the scope is as big as the last series, but this one is full of things we haven't seen yet in the new timeline, all leading into the mind-blowing events of the next movie. One of the interesting things that Johnson said was that there are no prime connections in this one. Um, The priority, they said, is exploring the new reality. So I'm wondering if they mean prime connections in the sense that there won't be any crossover whatsoever or that that's just not a focus. And so what we had talked about last week, it, it made me wonder if we're off, which obviously we can be, um, or if, it's more the fact that this just isn't going to be front and center the way it was last time. Right. That, that's exactly what I was thinking when I read this. Uh, and he made that comment. 
because we did speculate last week about uh, the character who appears in number one and whether there was a prime universe connection there or not. What I find really interesting, though, and, and I'm not going to tell you who the character is here, just in case you know you skipped over that discussion last week, so I, I'm not going to spoil it for you. What I did find interesting, though, is they asked him, will we meet any new characters that show up in the film? And Mike Johnson said, we can't answer without giving anything away, but I can tease you by saying that a character we have not seen yet in the new timeline shows up in issue number one and plays a critical role in the story. And uh, we, you know, we speculated on whether that character <laughs> is going to play a big role in the movie or whether that was just kind of a little twist they're throwing in. So it, it sounds like could actually be a big part of this. And I think if that's the case, I'm going to be very excited. Um, obviously, that we talked about last week, the twist at the end left us both honestly kind of giddy um, with anticipation of what that character might mean for the rest of the comic series and even the movie. So I think this is a great start. And if that's the character that we see, I'm very excited. Um, Definitely. So if you're listening to this and you have not yet picked up Countdown Number 1, go do it now. It's a great story. I think you'll be really impressed. And if you are an old-time Trekkie like us, uh, like Matthew just said, probably a bit giddy when you when you turn to that last page. <laughs> okay, Matthew, last item before we jump into our feature interview today with David A. Goodman, as we talk to him about his book Federation, The First 150 Years. Still in the comic universe, still in ongoing, the Abramsverse timeline we had a shipping delay, which we've been having now for about two months with IDW on ongoing number 17. It's finally going to come out next Wednesday, February 6th. And I think you're especially looking forward to this one. This is one that I am really looking forward to as they're doing Countdown into Darkness with the ongoing series. They're doing kind of backstories for our main characters. And this one is going to focus solely on Bones. Very excited. Is anyone who's listened to us knows that Bones was my favorite character in the ongoing series. He's my favorite character in the 09 series movie. I think that this is going to be a great comic. I'm hoping it. we really do get that backstory of, you know, maybe what went wrong or who Bones was married to, all those kind of things. And so I think that this is going to be a really good comic. And so I was a little disappointed that it didn't come out today which is the 30th when we're recording. Um, but it will be out next week, and we will talk about it then. So I'm very excited to be doing that. Today we're very excited to have author David A. Goodman with us, author of Federation the First 150 Years. And honestly, one of the first um, big books that we've had in a long time about uh, the background of Star Trek's history in the Star Trek timeline. So we're very excited to have David with you. How are you doing tonight, David? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Excellent. I'm so glad that you could carve out the time for us because when I first saw this book advertised on Amazon, I thought, this is a, such a great idea. And then, of course, I saw the pictures for it, and I just knew I had to get this and, and read it. Very much enjoyed the book. I, I honestly hope that this leads to more Star Trek books like this, because this is fantastic. 
Well, thanks a lot. I, I uh, really appreciate that. I, you know, when honestly, I wish I could take credit for the idea. It was not my idea. It was CBS Consumer Products uh, pitched me the idea, and honestly, I think I had a very similar similar reaction that you had seeing it advertised because when they pitched me the idea of doing this book, I was like, oh my God, do you really want to do that book? I was so excited that they wanted to do this kind of um, uh, fictional history, which which I am such a fan of uh, in both in Star Trek and in other uh, other properties that I was just really excited. I mean, I... I um, I, I, and I was really honestly kind of dumbfounded that they asked me to do it. Uh, although I have a, a long writing career in television, I've never written a book before. This is my first book. And I really fully expected somebody would at some point ask the question, wait, have you written a book before? And no one did. <laughs> and I because I thought, or they they knew I hadn't written a book and it didn't stop them from from hiring me. So I was very happy to do this project. Well, that I am glad of. Well, one of the things I, I always like to know, uh, especially from the authors and people involved in Star Trek, what was your first introduction to Star Trek? You know, it's hard to exactly remember. I was in elementary school and uh, I... Um, it was on reruns when I was a kid, and when I was a little kid, my images of it were that it was a show that was too scary for me to watch. I mean, I think I saw a piece of the Gorn episode arena when I was very little. <laughs> it looked too scary. There's a monster. I can't watch it. And then somewhere around fifth or sixth grade, um, I started watching it. And it was on every night, 6 o'clock in New York, Channel 11. And... I became hooked into watching the reruns. And then in junior high, I met a, a friend. His name was Marty Wagner. And Marty was a much bigger Star Trek fan than I was. And he he kind of introduced me to the idea of fandom, the idea of watching every episode of a series. And because you, the only way to do it then was to just watch it every night and hope that you would catch the episodes that you missed. And then sort of learning the, the, the order of episodes, that there was a, a first season and a second season and a third season. These were things that were not common knowledge when you were a TV watcher in those days. But the idea of fandom, fandom of a television show, that was really new. And Star Trek, to some extent, I think, created it. It created TV fandom. I think that... Uh, uh, and so that that was my instruction was this friend who was sort of opening my mind to the fact that these things were written and that they were written by science fiction authors and and so and I really got into it that way and then suddenly really I had enjoyed the show but then really got into the details of it and what are the details of this world and they did such an amazing job of creating the world of Star Trek that uh, it appealed that's I think what sort of drew me in, aside from the sort of action-adventure stories of the original series, which were always uh, fun to watch back then. I, I'm with you like that. I, I also was raised on the, the rerun, um, and my friends actually introduced me just one day. We were at home, and you know they flipped on the TV, and we, you have to watch this show, Star Trek. And my first episode was Plato's Stepchildren, so not even uh -huh. a good one. But, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was hooked, you know, from, from that yeah. moment. So, 
Um, I completely understand uh, how you feel about that. And um, one of the things too, what then, uh, you know, you started on the original series. Is that still your favorite series of all of the five or do you have a different favorite series? uh, I have different, for me, I love it all. uh, And I really do. Uh, Obviously, I, I feel like all the series have, good episodes and bad episodes. I, I, I wrote a joke in a Futurama episode that sort of sums up how I feel about Star Trek in terms of it's like, you know, uh, the main character is talking about uh, trying to get remind somebody of Star Trek and saying, you know, Star Trek, original series, 79 episodes, about 30 good ones. And <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about all, all the series is that, you know, they're not all perfect. Uh, but there's, like, really good things in each of them. Uh, original series I'm enjoying again because I love the remastering they've done and the new effects, and you can really enjoy that. It was probably, if I had to pick a favorite, I'd probably say original series, but, I, you know, you, you really, it's a hard choice. I, I really do watch all of them over and over. I'm, I'm a bit of an addict, and, and uh, I can watch any Star Trek and enjoy it, so. Well, that I think makes you the perfect person to put together this book, having that <laughs> yeah. that depth of, of knowledge of all the different series, and and of course starting from the original series for sure. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, that that was uh, it, having that. I mean, everyone said when I was writing the book, "Oh, you must have watched every episode over again," and I'm like, "No, I I didn't need to do that because I've been watching every episode for the last." 40 years over and over again. So there's a way <laughs> right. when I sat down to write the book, I really didn't need to like re- refresh my memory. It was all right there in front of my head. Well, you did get to write uh, the Futurama Star Trek episode there. So tell me just a little bit about that because it's a really funny episode. Thank you very much. Uh, I was hired on Futurama. I was, I was at that time in my career, I had worked actually on Family Guy and Family Guy was canceled. Uh, it would come back a few years later, and uh, I, uh, after Family Guy was the first animated comedy that I worked on, and it was produced by the same company that produced Futurama, and there were people who recommended me from Family Guy to David Cohen over Futurama, and he hired me, and this was for uh, at what was the fourth season of Futurama. And uh, when I got there, they had been talking about doing an episode with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, it was not necessarily going to be a Star Trek homage. Uh, they had a kind of a big, funny Futurama idea of a giant Shatner and giant Nimoy battling over New York. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what more they had, but that, that hearing that was funny to me. Uh, and then as we were tossing the idea around, uh, I sort of, not forcefully, but was uh, emphatically suggested that, you know, this is an opportunity to do a Star Trek episode and try to reunite more than just Shatner Nimoy, who I felt if you could get them, you could probably get the others. And David Cohen wanted to sort of toss around ideas. He, he didn't want to decide to do that until we knew we had a really good idea for the episode, and we started tossing around the idea, and we came up with the idea of the gas creature who kidnaps the original series and puts them in a battle with the Futurama characters like a Star Trek episode, and uh, that was my idea, and that's the, uh, 
And that then also being on the staff of Futurama was very, a very smart staff, really talented comedy writers, all of them Star Trek fans. Uh, and yet I had been there three or four weeks and David Cohen said, well, it's clear David Goodman's the biggest Star Trek fan, so he should write this. So even in that group, <laughs> even in that last year, in that, in that uh, group, I was still the biggest Star Trek fan. And I, and I was assigned that script. We worked out the story together, and then I went off to write the script. The first, I had two weeks to write my first draft. Uh, the first week I had jury duty, uh, during which I read a Star Trek book, uh, which I never read, uh, John Ford's The Final Reflection, and I was reading that during my lunch breaks, uh, during jury duty. And then jury duty ended, and I thought, oh, great, now I can really focus on the script because I'd only been writing it at night. And uh, the day after jury duty ended, I sprained my ankle. So then I was up in bed, propped up in bed writing the script, and even with jury duty and the sprained ankle, it was one of the greatest writing experiences to get to write that episode, which uh, uh, I'm very proud of. a uh, lot of great Star Trek references in that episode that don't get in the way of, of the story, of the comedy, of Futurama, but if you're a Star Trek fan, there's lots and lots of Easter eggs in there for you. That, for me, would be like the ultimate job, really, to be able to write <laughs> comedy, but to put the Star Trek in there. That, yeah. That's awesome. No, it definitely was a, uh, a, a bit of a high point. Well, you did get to work on... Uh the second season of Star Trek Enterprise uh, as a third. writer and, and the third as well. Um, so tell me about working on Enterprise and how did that come about? How did you get that job? You've obviously worked in TV a lot. And so uh, how did it come about that you got to actually work on one of these series? Yeah, well, you know, when I started to be a writer back in the 80s, when I was trying to, honestly, I had been inspired to be a Star Trek writer. Uh, but they really, uh, when I first was trying to break in, there was no Star Trek. This was before Next Generation, or I started to try before Next Generation. And I had a partner, a writing partner, and we were trying to write comedy, and we broke in uh, as comedy writers. And he and I were partners for a long time, and then we split up. And, and I'd always had in the back of my mind, I still would like to write for Star Trek. And, and over the years, I pitched freelance episodes and never sold anything to every sequel series, uh, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager. I pitched, I'd gone in and pitched every year trying to sell an episode ideas and pitched to every writer who worked there. I pitched to Ron Moore and Ira Bear and Robert Wolf, who became a friend of mine, and Renee Echevarria, and, um, Jerry Taylor. I mean, you know, uh, Brandon Braga a couple of times, like, so I pitched to these people, you know, these were people who were doing work that I really uh, admired. I loved those shows, and I loved the work they were doing, and I'd always wanted to write for those shows. But my main work was in comedy, and I had, my main resume was in comedy. And uh, and then I did the Futurama episode. And um, at that time, in the television business, there were less comedy jobs. So it was after Futurama was canceled, and it was canceled the season I worked on it, uh, just like Family Guy, just like about 15 shows that I've worked on or canceled when I worked on them. Um, <laughs> that that there were no, I was looking for a job and there weren't a lot of comedy jobs. And I just sort of said to my to my agent, why don't we try? Um, oh, well, why don't, well, actually, this is sorry, I don't always tell. 
I, at the time, Firefly was in development. And I had, some, I had a couple of contacts that got me a meeting with Joss Whedon. And I knew that Joss had himself come out of comedy, and I knew that his shows had a lot of comedy in them, and I thought this would be potentially a job that I could get. And I had the meeting with Joss, and he didn't offer me the job. It went very well, and I'm a huge Firefly fan, became a huge Firefly fan. Um, but um, uh, did not get offered a job there, but then said to my agent, uh, well, what about Star Trek? And, and the thing about the Star Trek shows is that they, they were very eclectic about how they hired people. And so my agent was very uh, aggressive uh, trying to get Brandon uh, on the phone to see if he was interested in meeting me. And at the time, Brandon had been interested in a writer named, uh, well, I actually don't remember uh, exactly which one it was. It was somebody who eventually ended up on Firefly, but Brandon had been interested in him for Enterprise and had been somewhat upset that he'd lost him to Firefly. And so my agent, knowing this, says to Brandon, uh, you should meet David Goodman. He just met on Firefly. Uh, Josh is thinking about hiring him, which wasn't, uh, wasn't exactly a lie, but it wasn't ended up not being the truth either. And Brandon, wanting to try and uh, get even with Josh, said, well, get David Goodman in here. I want to meet him. So I got this meeting with Brandon uh, because he had, he thought he was potentially stealing somebody from Josh. Uh, and then in the meeting with Brandon, uh, I've been, again, a huge Star Trek fan, and I've been reading interviews with Brandon uh, for, uh, at that point, for 10 years. And knew how he felt about Star Trek and knew what he would say about Star Trek. And so basically just sort of reparated uh, a lot of things that I had read him in interview say, and then talked about my favorite episodes of the first season of Enterprise, leaving out the ones that I didn't think were very good. But I thought there were some really good episodes. And I think Brandon had a very strong positive reaction because, one, he was hearing a lot of things that he himself would say because he had already said them. But then also I was picking episodes from the first season that he also thought were his strongest work. So uh, he and Rick had had this idea of Enterprise being a lighter Star Trek, and they thought, oh, maybe it'll be fun to have a comedy writer on the staff. Uh, so that also sort of played a role in me getting the job. Uh, and I had the meeting with Rick, and, and I had had a writing sample that was a science fiction movie that they, they had read, they liked. Um, uh, and I was hired. Long story. No, that's that's fascinating <laughs> to see how all that works together, especially yeah, was, with the different shows and how everybody's yeah. just kind of looking for the right writer for their show. And yeah, uh, that's right. excellent. What was it like then kind of getting to work behind the scenes and, and writing the different episodes that you got to work on and um, just kind of working you know, in the world of Star Trek day in and day out. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, you know, I don't know that I ever had a job where I felt like the ideas came easier. I think that the, the franchise was a little tired at that point. I think the Brandon and Rick would even admit to being tired in that they've been doing this type of show for a very long time. And so that if some of the storytelling lacked some freshness, on the other hand, they still did a great show. And, um, I got to, you know, I, I got off to a rough start. The first episode I wrote was a show called Precious Cargo, which I still have never watched all the way through. 
uh, I really did not come out well. Um, I, well, I, I want to let you know that I love that episode. I think it's oh, hilarious. Oh, okay, good. Then I won't, so, I won't try it too hard. I, I'm one of those uh, maybe fans. Maybe I'll watch it now. Yeah, I think it's very funny. So, But oh, I was good. always a huge Trip Tucker fan, so thank you for yeah. that episode. Oh, you're welcome. I uh, I would say that the, <laughs> the piece of crap that I wrote is not the piece of crap that aired. But I didn't watch <laughs> it, though. Uh, uh, I, uh, that was heavily rewritten. But I, but I had a lot of ideas in there. And again, Connor... I thought it was a terrific actor. I think he he, he did uh, great work in other shows that I wrote. But but it was I almost got fired um, after that script. They did. They really didn't think I fit in uh, in terms of a writer on that show. And I realized that um, pretty quickly that I had to get back to what it was that I loved about Star Trek and figure out what I wanted to write. And there had been this story that had been kicked around. Uh, that another writer named Taylor Elmore had pitched um, that I took and reworked and repitched to Brannon uh, involving a Klingon and Archer being on trial and a flashback episode. And it was very funny because I didn't notice it at the time, but it had a very similar format to my Futurama episode, which was a trial episode where a lot of it's in flashback. And, and it was very funny that that was also my first episode of Star Trek had that same format. Um, but um, that became judgment, and that kind of turned my prospects around at Star Trek. They, they, they changed their mind about me and thought I was worth keeping, and, and, uh, and that really was writing something that I wanted to write. And... Um, I'm very proud of that episode. I felt like the episode said something about um, not just about the Klingons, but also sort of about our society and our, our focus on war and and uh, how that affects us and affects our kids. And that, that you know, the Klingons are sort of standing in for our our world in a certain way. And and, and then also sort of got to set up some, some uh, continuity issues about why you know, why the Klingons of the original series are different than the Klingons of Next Gen, and I'm sort of setting a lot of that up in that Enterprise episode. So that was that was a lot of fun, and also getting to work with... I remember one of my first days, Brandon took me down to the set, and he introduced... He said, oh, this is Herman Zimmerman, and I was... And I couldn't sort of... Herman Zimmerman is the production designer, and he's the name I've been seeing on the credits for years, and I just had this kind of like, oh, wow, reaction, and the two of them sort of laughed at me because I was still this fan. Getting to meet. And those behind-the-scenes people, I, I was still always very uh, impressed to meet, and, and I think they, they all did amazing work week to week. I miss the fact that that kind of work isn't really being done on TV that way now. Um, so that first season was, um, you know, those two episodes, and I was then brought back for a second season, and... Uh, Working with some great people, Chris Black and Mike Sussman and Andre Bormanis, uh, we're all still my friends and all still huge Star Trek fans. And sort of getting to infuse this show with Star Trek fan things was was fun and just ideas that I've had that made it into the show. And um, I was going to ask, you know, you got to be on season two and then work on season yeah. three, and and yeah. season three has a big shift in it, um, yeah. kind of the the push forward of enterprise and really bringing the story forward and the characters forward and doing something that star Trek had never done. Um, can you talk a little bit just about that shift and, um, 
you know, what you thought was kind of successful in that season, what maybe wasn't so successful and just what it meant for kind of enterprise overall. Yeah. Well, season three, I mean, I think that, um, between season two and season three, I think the network was worried about the ratings and Rick and Brandon came up with this idea of doing something, you know, really big in season three, a continuing story and, you know, and, 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 you know, sending us to a new weird area of space. And, you know, they were really trying to get the network on board for something really different and exciting. And I think that in the pitch stage, it was very exciting. And I think that there's still stuff about the Zindi arc that I think is really cool. I think that the idea of the Zindi planet and these five different species and two of them being completely computer-generated is something, again, you really don't see on television. And they were weird, and it was fun. And I think that uh, some of those episodes are great. I think um, what didn't work, and this actually leads back to when we talked about the book, was um, as the writing staff, we we, we didn't fully plot it out ahead of time. So we're doing sort of weird, mysterious things that don't really fully tie together in a coherent fashion by the end of the season. And the backstory of the Zindi and the backstory of the uh, sphere builders uh, is very mysterious and weird, uh, but you can't explain it. There's no explanation for it. And I, and I personally, as a fan, I want that explanation. I want to know that it makes sense. And the Zindi backstory and what happened with the sphere builders, that, that backstory is just not clear. And yeah, that's not. for me too. When you got to the sphere builders, I felt like I thought the sphere builder angle was cool, but I it felt like a mystery that was kind of thrown out there and then left. I would have loved to have known more about that. I, I agree, and so I think that's really where we failed as a writing staff. And I take some responsibility. I was in, I was involved in that. I mean, I uh, but I wasn't in charge, so I don't take full responsibility. Uh, and the, ironically, the beginning of that season. They had this pitch for the full season arc, uh, but Rick had said, but make sure we break some freestanding episodes just in case we want to abandon it early on. So I was the only person on the writing staff who pitched a freestanding episode that season. It was North Star, the cowboy episode. And uh, it was a very gratifying experience because I'm a fan of the original series, and there hadn't really been any Parallel Planet episodes in the sequel series. Uh, and I wanted to, I wanted to do a uh, parallel planet, uh, episode, you know, like they had on the original series, like, you know, Rome or, or, uh, Omega Glory or, you know, Britain Circuses or Omega Glory or these things. And, uh, I pitched the premise of the kidnapped, a kidnapped wagon train is transplanted on another planet. And, and, uh, I got to write that one and its execution I thought was amazing. And, Again, Connor is amazing in it, and Scott is amazing, and you know, they're they're it's a fun episode, and and uh, uh, really great to see the Parallel Planet episode produced on a produced and and in a in a in modern television with the with the costumes of modern television and the and the cinematography. And the, what do you guys like think about that one? 
I think it, you're right. I, I loved the look of that episode. It was a, yeah. it's a really well shot episode. Um, yeah. just the, the way the camera angles happened, um, the, the way that it, it was lit as an episode I thought was really yeah. good. And, uh, I thought it was really nice too, to be able to have the crew have a couple of episodes that weren't about this whole big arc in the same way yeah. that, you know, Deep Space Nine would take some breaks from the Dominion right. War and give you right. some just lighter episodes, which, you right. know, like take me out to the ballpark or something. Right, um, right, right. So, I, I yeah, and I really again, actually enjoyed that. Oh, thanks. The, uh, I think that the uh, – I wasn't just looking for compliments. If you didn't like it, you just tell it. Uh, but I, I, <laughs> no, it's, I, a, uh, it's a fun episode. I think that the, the, the example of Deep Space Nine is, is an excellent one because there they did, you know, two seasons of the war, or maybe it's almost three, and it was so well laid out, beautifully laid out, and the fans so satisfying. And the twists and turns with Gold Todd and all those things, and that's something we didn't we didn't do well enough on Enterprise with our Zindi uh, stories. And having said that, there were some great episodes that season. I think Similitude holds up as a, as a great Star Trek episode for any of the series, or Twilight, a great episode. Um... Just great. There are some great, great episodes in that in that season. Yes, I I, I agree. There are some episodes in there that, um, you know, every time I watch, I, I find kind of gut wrenching. Um, yeah. I think of damages, um, yeah. and uh, yeah, good stuff. I I think did it seem like having kind of being under the gun um, from the studio um, didn't necessarily help you guys in the writing room. Well, I don't know. I mean, at, at once they got the, the sign-off, then it's really, again, it's all up to Rick and Brennan, and I think that they, the network laid off once the production started. I think that, you know, I, I think that there were, there were always, you know, I, I think at Enterprise, there was a lot that was great about it, and there was a lot that wasn't. And because you had, because of the premise of the, this is me as just as a Star Trek fan, the premise of the first ship, is I'm not sure that sending it alone into a space, you know, I, I like I always had the trouble of why why doesn't he just blow up the Enterprise? Like I'm not sure that I, I buy that Enterprise is on its own there and surviving. Whereas when you the original series you had a fleet, you know, there was a fleet. It was always it wasn't just one ship, and so that so that the the problems with the Zindi arc to me, you know, an Enterprise was it's out there alone, but it's not alone, and there were just problems with the the way we wrote stories based on how they'd been doing shows that they needed to break the mold a little bit, and it wasn't it wasn't broken enough to. And Brandon has talked about has told me about how they re, in, in concept they actually wanted the first season of Enterprise to take place on Earth and building the ship and then launching the ship and then having that be really a, a process which and and that that the network really wanted the Star Trek format. And I think that hurt the premise of this show of the first ship. If you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, definitely. I think so. I, I I think that that would have, uh, you know, I heard that from Brandon as well. And I think that would have made a very excellent show. Um, Definitely breaking with the mold a little bit from Star Trek, but giving us something completely new, um, something for people to really gravitate towards because they'd never seen it before. And so you kind of want to keep watching because you don't know, okay, when are they going to actually get to the, 
when are they going to get to get space? When is this ship going to be done? How's this all yeah. going to come together? I, I think that would yeah, have been exactly. really interesting. Um, yeah, I think so too. But anyway, yeah. so I, I don't know about being under the gun. I think that there were just problems in sort of in the, excuse the expression, problems in the bones of Enterprise that kept it from really fulfilling what it needed to as a as a as a Star Trek series. Um, uh, but uh, but no, we had. I mean, we 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 got to write some great stuff and some great sequences. And I, I the, there's a. For the, the unusual crossover of Star Trek and Family Guy happened in third season when uh, I brought Seth in, Seth MacFarlane, who created Family Guy, in to play a role. He's a huge Star Trek fan, and he's a plays an engineer in The Forgotten. And then he was brought back after I left in season four, and uh, I loved having, you know, I love having that on my resume. That, that, the, the guy who plays Peter Griffin is on Family Guy. <laughs> That's great. Is on Star Trek. Is on Star Trek. Okay. Well, you talked a little bit just about the genesis of Federation, the first hundred and fifty years mm-hmm. um, that CBS had approached you to do this book. Yeah. Um, walk me through just kind of that process and, and getting started because that's a lot of ground to cover too, one hundred and fifty years. And so, yeah, yeah, actually, the book covers like more like 250 years uh, because it's about a, it, it, here's the here's how that all happened that so they had the idea of doing this book and they sat down and asked me if I, if I was interested in and I honestly didn't even know and they wanted to have the sort of historical document in it they had that that was their idea was that do the history book with sort of pieces of the historical documents in the book just like this it's sort of modeled on this book uh that was done uh, about the American Revolution. That had that was a history of the American Revolution, 1776, the name of the book. And uh, there's a t- coffee table version of the book that has copies of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. And that's that was sort of the model of it. Um, and but that's all they had was that idea. And so uh, it was then up to me to sort of write an outline, which they were then trying to sell to a publisher. And it was a very sort of thin outline. It was only a couple of pages, but what would each chapter would cover? Uh, what period of history each chapter would cover and what documents I would imagine would be in that chapter. And so I'm really making up these documents and I'm making up. And so I'm, I'm sort of, at that point, arbitrarily sort of deciding on periods, the periods of time based, uh, really using um, the Okuda's uh, Star Trek chronology book, which was very helpful in terms of they've done obviously all this work figuring out dates and then then and then and then figuring out uh from online resources what the dating is of the enterprise episodes um and so figuring out that and so i had that outline and i did that and sort of made a pass at sort of figuring out ideas for documents and i knew that i wanted some bit of the articles of federation in there and that i wanted uh, references to certain episodes, so sort of thinking of treaties and things like that from from original series episodes and Enterprise episodes that, that I might reference in there or biographies. So I wrote that, and that was in, let's say, June of, what year is it now? It's 2013, so this is June of 2011. And, around, and then I sent that in, and a few months later, I got a call from CBS. Okay, we sold it. You have three months to write this book. Oh, uh, oh goodness. Uh, three months. Go. <laughs> three months. Go. 
And uh, so then I'm talking to my editor who worked at this book type, Jerry Becker Mayer, and we're sort of figuring out the book together. And the idea uh, of the of the 150 years was uh, CBS Consumer Products, the, the man who worked there named John Van Sitter's huge Star Trek fan, said, you know, he had said that he wanted the history to cover from Zephyr Cochran to um, uh, Star Trek VI. Uh, that that history would be the confines of it. And so the question that the editor and I had was figuring out, well, why? What's the hi who wrote the history? Who wrote the history book? Do I have John Gill write it? And then it didn't quite work because he can't cover, obviously, events past a certain point. And, you know, do, you know, do we have a fictional editor? You know, and then I decided I would be the, you know, in-world historian. And that the idea was figuring out based on when for when the Federation was uh, purportedly founded that 150 years, uh, the 150-year anniversary of the Federation would sort of adequately cover that period of time. And you could then sell the idea that this book was written as uh, uh, to celebrate the 150th anniversary. It was commissioned by Memory Alpha to celebrate the 150th anniversary. So this is sort of the in-world fiction that we came up with, uh, the editor and I came up with as we're um, talking about the book, to sort of explain who is writing it and why. And that added a level to the book that I think was great. That added this level to the book that, again, puts it in the world of Star Trek. It, it's not just, uh, it, it, it puts it in the timeline itself. It puts myself in the timeline. And, and, and I paid that off in the book in a couple of ways. Um, so that uh, 150th anniversary is like ends up on 2311, which is past the events of Star Trek VI, past Kirk's death on the Enterprise B, uh, and covers, you know, that, that territory. Um, uh, but then really sort of then sitting down, I had to sort of, with each chapter, figure out what in each chapter has already been covered. So in the first chapter, which uh, was the, this prologue, uh, it was that from Cochrane and the meeting with the Vulcans, that's been covered, so I know I've just got to explain that. And I've got to talk about World War III in some way. Uh, and I've got to cover things that were mentioned in Enterprise, which were like uh, the Terranova, the episode Terranova, which talked about Conestoga, uh, I had to talk about that, and I had to talk about boomers, and I had to talk about um, uh, cargo ships, and then I had to talk about the Valiant that was lost outside the galaxy, and I had to talk, there's all the, that was from the original series, and I had to talk, there were a couple of things I, uh, I left out that I haven't mentioned, like in Voyager, Friendship One, I didn't mention that, but so there were things that I uh, didn't mention that were part of that history, uh, but, um, uh, you know, I, and then other things that, uh, you know, I would sort of lay in uh, in, in, uh, in preparation for um, things later in the book. So um, uh, Jonathan Archer meeting Zephyr Cochran, for instance, which, which is a no, it's, it's mentioned, I think, that he met Zephyr Cochran in Enterprise, but I don't, it doesn't say how. And so, uh, 
you know, so that's my first chapter, and then I've got to write a cogent kind of history. And I, my first pass of the chapter really was just kind of this summary, which I turned into my editor, whose response was, this reads like a Wikipedia entry, which was, was not a compliment, uh, and really hurt. Uh, and, and I, and we, but she sort of pointed out that there was a couple times where I had quoted, uh, John Gill or somebody, and she said, why don't you do more of that? And that really changed the book, because that really, that, then whenever I sort of hit a snag, or I would like quote a fake book, or a fake document, or a fake piece of, uh, a fake interview. And uh, that really sort of pulled the book together for me when I was writing it was that I could really create these sort of off-screen characters or use people who were already in the canon to help me tell the story. Um, but it was, I mean, it was tough. It was tough to make sense of it all. It was tough to make sense of World War III. Uh, I don't know if you guys caught my footnote that explained why Khan, uh, why we've never heard of Khan. Uh, on our on our earth i i did yeah i did catch that why don't you let the listeners know though um what you had done because i i really liked that uh well you know that there was a bit of an argument for me when with cbs because i was just going to ignore the 1990s uh because we lived through the 1990s and i wanted to feel like it may be a real history book and you know i never met uh you know con didn't rule a quarter of my world. <laughs> he, he, and uh, But CBS was insistent. I had to mention it. I had to figure it out. And, you know, so if somebody sets a, a goal like that for you, it's a challenge to overcome it in a way that you're satisfied. And what I came up with was this idea. So I, I talk about the 1990s and the genetic supermen and who they were. And this was actually a chance to include some names that had been mentioned in uh, original series episodes like... Uh, Ferris and Maltubis and Lee Kwan, and these were all sort of part, these guys ended up all being part of the World War III and who they were as part of that. But but I mentioned the 1990s, and then in a footnote, I sort of mentioned that World War III was such a catastrophic event, so many people had won, when time travel was discovered, uh, people tried to go back and change it, and one group tried by stealing a ship. We don't know if they were successful. If they were successful, it was only in creating an alternate timeline, implying, of course, that you and I are living in an alternate timeline, uh, that there is no eugenics wars, there is no World War III, uh, which, I, which I, I like. I feel like, you know, now both worlds can exist. In the Star Trek world, Star Trek exists in an alternate timeline. Uh, and that, that was exciting to sort of figure that out. And to have that on the first page, I think, sets a tone for the book, a fun tone for the book. Yes, the, I, well, that's the thing I really liked and responded to when reading this is that it feels like I've walked into any you know future bookstore, um, and if they still have bookstores then, which I would hope that <laughs> exactly. they would in some form, and that this was sitting there, and and you know I just picked it up and I'm perusing it, and I'm getting to look back at, at the history just as I would, like you said. Um, the you know the 1776 book and right. seeing the different things and if this is just my history and it, I think it really really works. Um, doing Thank this, you. where do all the sources come from? Because there's a lot of things in here. Did you just make basically make the things up or? Um, yeah, completely. Uh, I mean, the, you know, I I know that uh, you know, that 
I, I used John Gill a couple of times because that's an original series historian. And then there's another historian from the animated series that I used once to talk about the Klingons. And I thought it would be it's an alien historian that I thought uh, was, you know, only an alien historian could do history of the Klingons like a human historian really couldn't do a history of the Klingons. So I wanted that historian to be alien, and I referenced an animated series character. Um, and uh, then uh, there are names, you know, I drew names from people who I knew are names of people who uh, were mentioned on the show and tried to mix it up, tried to make it histories, tried to make it transcripts, tried to make it diaries, biographies, so that it wasn't always quoting a history or quoting, you know. Uh, and, and there was a point where I kind of hit a wall um, where I, I was sort of run out of a variety of things. It's like, okay, I've done a lot of biographies, quoting biographies of people, quoting histories. And so there was, I, it was, so I, I came up with this, uh, Commodore Mendez, the character Commodore Mendez, which is an original series character, is discussing the Battle of Donatu Five, where he fought with Matt Decker, and I said he related in a in an interview with this author, implying that I had interviewed him. Which I at that moment at four in the morning when I was writing that chapter, I was very pleased when I came up with that uh, that, <laughs> that idea that I'm really placing myself in the book. And I did that another time with, I think, uh, Hiram Roth, who was the name of the name I took from some website for the president of the Federation in Star Trek Four. That's what we call living Star Trek. Yes, we, exactly. We right. hashtag that uh, on Twitter all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that, so th those were all things I made up to give it kind of a life. That there had been all these other histories written or other things written uh, that had contributed to this book. So when it comes to then, you know, the literary universe that it exists in the novels, that isn't something that you really used at all then? I, did, I didn't. I didn't. I mean, I read a lot of the books and there were things that I liked. So there are things that sort of snuck in. So, for instance, that reference in that, in that um, you know, the reference in the footnote that I'm talking about, about the eugenics wars, I don't know that Michael Jan Friedman would get that I was referencing uh, crossover his book, uh, but I have them steal the USS Yorktown from the Starfleet Museum to go back in time, and that's a reference to Scotty stealing it. I, I just I like that book and I enjoyed it. So there things like that where I would take something that I would like. Uh, there there may have been you know, and I'm I'm sort of blanking. I feel like there was another reference in the book that I had read. Well, certainly, honestly, uh, I think it's at first. Frontier is that the Diane Carey book about Robert April? Um, there's a book Diane Carey wrote about Robert April and George Kirk on on the Enterprise, the first Enterprise, and I definitely it definitely inspired part of the chapter, the creation of the Robert April character in my book, uh, because I thought I enjoyed the characterization of April in that book. Uh, but those are sort of really the only things I didn't not in. Anyway, it's impossible to adhere to uh, the continuity of the novels uh, and the continuity of the series, I think. And then on top of it, just, uh, again, I enjoy the novels, uh, the ones that I read. Uh, but by 
they're required to put our characters at the center of history. And, and what I wanted to do with this book was, whenever possible, say there was plenty of history going on without our characters, without the main characters of the series, so that you had a sense of an epic scope of history, that, that uh, other things were going on and Kirk isn't always at the center of everything. Right, which is very nice. I, I sometimes feel that the character, our main characters are overused and right. especially happens in literature. So I'm glad that you took that approach. Thank you. Well, and you got, you also got the opportunity to do something like uh, put Curzon Dax inside the background of Star Trek six, right. which I thought was excellent because it made a lot of sense, um, especially with that character and what we know of Curzon. And I was really excited to see stuff like that in this book um, that just made it so much fun as a fan. It, I felt like I was watching the behind the scenes of Star Trek, you know, history. Um, and that's what really makes this book worth the buy and very exciting. And so, um, well, thank you very much. You know, honestly, that was the, putting Curzon in that, in that chapter was really hard. Uh, uh, because I'm a fan, I'm a fan of Deep Space Nine. I'll be honest. I'm not a huge fan of the character of Curzon Dax. Never quite understood it. I never quite got it. Uh, because you never fully get to see that character realized by an actor. So there's a way in which I, it was always this weird off-screen character. Uh, he existed inside Dax. So for me as a fan, I had a lot of trouble picturing that character. So to put him in uh, Star Trek VI, but it was necessary. CBS is actually, CBS had mentioned Curzon. I would make sure to include Curzon. And, and, um, and I realized, oh, right, he would have been a big part of this in some way. He had to be. And um, it was hard. It was really hard because those characters in Star Trek VI, I've seen that movie, you know, 30 times. And putting him in the background there was really difficult in a way that I felt like made sense. So I'm really glad to play that thing. Yeah, it's my favorites of the Star Trek films. And so just to get more background on it, um, I will appreciate the film all the more now for reading this, and so. Oh, very um, cool! Thank you. Yeah, yeah thank yeah. you. No, very I, much. I love that movie. I love that movie. I think it's a great movie. Well, one of the things that I I really liked was that you kind of helped to answer some of the questions about Federation and Earth's leadership, um, and kind of Earth always being at the center of the Federation. Um, talk to me just about that kind of idea and and what you come up with in the book. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting because I think that in the development, you can sort of see see the um, see it in the original series that when you watch it, is that over time, uh, the Federa- in the original series, I, and this is, I think, it was a creative involvement on the series, is that Earth was at the center of it in the beginning, in the first season. You you know, you got the United Earth Space Probe Agency is is the, the authority that runs Starfleet, and everything's really kind of Earth, and when you talk about the Earth-Romulan War, it's the Earth-Romulan War, it wasn't the Federation-Romulan War, and, you know, it was all these things, the Earth-centric things. I think that was a function of uh, the writers, Ronberry and the writers, sort of taking baby steps to this, to the larger idea of a Federation made up of aliens, made up of uh, this sort of democratic government that's not just humans, because as the series progresses, the show is much less Earth-centric. You really do get the sense. Journey to Babel, great example in second season of Life. Right. This is it is not Earth-centric. You got a bunch of aliens. We got to worry about all these aliens, and it's not Earth's show anymore. And 
I think that was a create. I'm guessing it was a creative evolvement on the show. It got like a, a confidence that happened among the writers. Like it doesn't have to be earth centric. It could be more uh, of a of a you know different aliens kind of thing. And but approaching this book, uh, I'm looking. I that's what that's my guess as to what happened. But if you watch the episode, you can't get away from the fact that in that first season of the original series, it's Earth-centric. And that then also, a step further, with Enterprise, was a very Earth-centric show. And and the, one of the things I did contribute to Enterprise was this idea, and it's in a lot of episodes, it's in Ceasefire, which, although I didn't write the episode, I worked on it with Chris Black, and uh, I played a role in saying, this is why... And, and this wasn't intended, I don't think, when they started with Enterprise to fill in the uh, fill in the Federation, is that this is why Earth matters. Earth is going to bring these aliens who do nothing but fight together, and uh, and that to me was as a Star Trek fan that that at working on Enterprise back then, I felt like I was really making a contribution to the idea of connecting Enterprise to the original series. Why? Is the Federation so Earth-centric? So I, I actually did play a role in that, which I kind of am very proud of. Um, and so that that had to be my approach in the book, which is rather than say, rather than ignore the fact that these shows were Earth-centric, say that there is something unique about humans moving out into the galaxy that they brought something to the party that brought people together brought these alien races together. And that Earth and Vulcan especially is the core of this, that partnership, and sort of showing the events in the book that brought those two planets to a place where, from Enterprise, where they're not they're allies but tense allies to the fact that to the original series where Earth and Vulcan are, you know, of the same mind, that these are just straight-ahead allies who support each other in our, you know, and that, showing that involvement, I think was kind of exciting, and that, that the Romulan War had something to do with that, and that what happened in the Romulan War, and the specifics of what I came up with, informed that change. Yes, definitely. I think that's that was one of my favorite parts of the book. I thought it worked very well to see that, you know, because of what humanity had been through, um, that it, it was able to help these other species in the galaxy uh, see things from a different perspective, you know, because right. humans have just been through war. Um, many right. of these species don't know war on their own planets for, you know, hundreds right. and hundreds of years. And right. so Earth has a, a different perspective on violence now than even Vulcans mm -hmm. or, say, Andorians, Tellarites. Right. Um, and I thought that that was very interesting because in the sense, that's just how we as humans are too. We, we, learn from our experiences hopefully right. you know and uh it was neat right. to see that 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 does have a play in the galaxy and so um i mean well, i sort I... of put the i put those words in john gill's mouth that in in my book uh sort of giving credit to john wells john gill for something that i thought of but <laughs> but uh but i like that idea i like that idea that yes that because we got out into space right after this horrific World War III. We were going to be skittish about starting wars and getting into fights and figured we were going to make an extra effort for peace. 
And uh, that, to me, was uh, at least explains that, you know, why humans made a difference. One of the things I was kind of wondering while reading the book, and especially knowing that CBS uh, approached you to do this, uh, the canon question, you know, where does this book rank, do you think, in that kind of, uh, in those kind of terms? Well, I, you know, I, w- I was told that this book is canon uh, until uh, somebody films something that says it's not. <laughs> um, that they, the CBS felt very, you know, they, they, and they knew that I would be slavish to continuity, uh, uh, so that they, that that was part of the sales of it. That this is put out now by, you know, the official uh, Star Trek. Uh, uh, producer and saying and that this is canon uh, and that was my job was to make it feel like canon make it feel like it, it didn't contradict filmed adventures of Star Trek Star Trek is film I mean it's TV or it's movies and so that to me is always and that's always going to be canon you always have to say uh, this is canon now obviously it's canon for the prime universe because JJ's universe is different uh, uh is, is an alternate universe. So this is prime. This is canon for what fans call the prime universe. Well, and there is that nice, um, you know, you do that a little bit with the JJ universe saying that, you know, even in the prime universe, Kirk is born on the Kelvin. The Kelvin. And yeah. yeah. So you, you pay homage to that. And I thought that that was really nice to see, um, you know, obviously without following the rest of, of what happened there. So right. Really well, cool. I, you know, honestly, I felt like that was cool. I felt like it's interesting because I'd read on a, a website that one of the writers of start of, of JJ Abrams, Star Trek, Roberto Orsi had said in their minds, you know, the Kelvin in the regular universe, the Kelvin would have made it back to earth before she gave birth or, you know, and that Kirk would have been born on earth. Uh, my feeling was, well, since I didn't explain that, my feeling was it was cooler that Kirk, although raised in Iowa, was born in space, was the child of two Starfleet officers. I just think that's cooler for his character. Um, and uh, so I, I was happy to sort of embrace that. Well, are there any plans at all uh, for a sequel to this? Um, because I'd love to see, you know, from Star Trek Six up to, say, uh, the days of Picard and, and onward. Well, I mean, I imagine it determines on how much money this book makes. We'll determine whether there's a sequel. So <laughs> that's a, that's the question. So everyone go out right now and buy this yeah. book. Buy two exactly. copies. <laughs> we want that yeah. TNG future. Yeah. It's uh, it's a, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's all about, I mean, it's all about how it sells. I mean, I think it's doing pretty well. It's only available on Amazon. So uh, it limits, you know, its sales possibilities. But, uh, uh, but, uh, the reaction has been very good. I, I mean, I, what, can I ask you guys, do you have anything you didn't like about the book? I'd love to hear some criticisms. You know, there were just parts that I wish that had gotten more fleshed out. I think the only thing that I really uh, wanted a little bit more of was um, seeing some of the background um, for Kirk between, you know, the five-year mission and him becoming an admiral and all those kind of uh-huh. things there's that right. section that's really short in the book. I think that's the only thing yeah. I would have wanted more in um, because that's right. that's definitely an area we don't know a lot about at all. No, we um, don't. 
And so I think that if if I could have added something, I would have added, wanted something there. Right, right. Uh, well, that's interesting. Uh, I, I think that you know we were limited in space, and again, that that piece of it isn't necessary because it. Uh, I wasn't actually covering history. I was I was covering history, so unless those events played in the larger historical context, I I don't know that. Uh, and since they didn't exist, I, I didn't see a need to make them up. So. Although maybe Definitely. it would be a, a chance to do the to sneak phase two into there, sneak the the, the, the you know the aborted phase two mm -hmm. series. So not right. not not the fan series, but the one that was going to be produced for. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because there's a lot of kind of the in between stuff that goes on there, and yeah. even just the the change in um, you know Starfleet ships from the uh, you know old Constitution class, right. and seeing you know when we get to the films, the ships look very different. Um, yeah. and Seeing that yeah. change in Starfleet and and right. you know starship engineering. So, but yeah, honestly, you know, you're right. There's you know, you, you want to keep the book, uh, to a certain length. And I think on reading through it, it really is a great length. You can sit down and read it in a couple of sittings. Um, That's and nice. it's excellent for that. Um, and it looks great around the house too. So. Yeah. Like I have one on my table. I'm, I, I'm very, very proud of it. So. Well, um, one of the things I always enjoy, um, seeing writers and asking them is, what are the things that you yourself enjoy reading when you get a chance or, uh, you know, when you go to a Barnes and Noble or, you know, any bookstore, what kind of piques your interest in? Well, I read a lot of nonfiction. Uh, well, actually when I got uh, hired to do this book, I was reading a book called Sea of Thunder, which is a book about the battle of the battle of, of uh, Leyte Gulf, which was a world war two battle. Yes. And, um, uh, it's a great book by Evan Thomas, and I was reading it at that moment, and um, and it informed how I wrote the section on the Romulan War because I I love those sort of descriptions of uh, historical descriptions of war, and uh, mm -hmm. so I read I read nonfiction, but I'm a big science fiction reader still. Uh, I'm just reading right now John Scalzi's book uh, Old Man's War, which is fun, um, but I you know I. The book I read before that was a nonfiction book about the uh, 2008 election, Game Change. Great book. Uh, so I, I, I mix it up. Um, reading, I'm doing a television show right now. I'm writing for a television show that's a, a cop show, so I'm also reading cop mysteries right now. So I mix it up. I, I, I like, I'm an eclectic reader. I, I probably don't read a lot of sort of literary fiction. Uh, that's probably the one area that I don't read a lot of. Uh, but uh, definitely sort of historical nonfiction, which informed this book, obviously. Uh, Who is your favorite science fiction author? Uh, that's interesting. Uh, interesting question. I um, I was a big fan for a long time of uh, Philip Jose Farmer, uh, who wrote uh, the River World series and wrote some really fun pastiches. He, he would sort of mix things up, and I don't know if, you're aware this for the Star Trek fans out there. He wrote to uh, he pitched to Star Trek the original series, and two of his short stories uh, are he originally came up with for Star Trek episodes. So the two short stories are the Shadow of Space and Sketches 
among the ruins of my mind. It's hard to figure out how sketches among the ruins of my mind could be a Star Trek episode, but The Shadow of Space, it's a weird story, but it takes place on a starship, and there's this weird thing that happens, and it's a very cool story. Uh, and as a Star Trek fan, it's fun to read, you know, read a science fiction author who was also trying to write for Star Trek and took his unsold ideas and made them into short stories. That, that was kind of cool. I, uh, yeah, right. But I've also read... Uh, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of Isaac Asimov, a lot of Arthur C. Clarke, uh, um, and uh, a lot of Larry Niven, uh, and and uh, and Mo the Moat in God's Eye. If I had to pick a, the Moat in God's Eye is to me uh, like the best, uh, the best science fiction novel that that's that. Uh, it's almost like they wrote the best Star Trek episode ever. Uh, that that book is a great book, and it has the feel of Star Trek in a certain way, but it's so much more, and it's a great book. So, have you read that book? Have you guys read? Have you guys read that book? I haven't read that one actually. You should. Oh, the Moat in God's Eye. Go get it. It's great. Actually, I believe I have the audio version of that, but I haven't. I've been through it in a long time. Yeah, it's it's quite good. It's a quite a good book. Uh, great, great science fiction. Well, um, one of the, the last thing that we always like to do with the author is uh, tell us what you're working on now and where people can follow you and find you. And this is your space to just talk about what you're doing and uh, basically plug right. anything you'd like to. <laughs> well, currently I sold a TV series to Fox. Uh, it's called Murder Police. It's an animated show. Uh, it's basically an animated cop show. Uh, it'll be on Fox on Sunday nights uh, in November. Uh, so we're very excited about that. And, Ooh, for some uh, animation domination. Yep, there you go. <laughs> and um, uh, very, uh, so I'm working on that right now. Um, and that's so I have most of my time. Uh, I hope to do another Star Trek type book, uh, either a sequel to this or there's something else uh, which. We haven't sold yet, so I'm not going to talk about it because we may not sell it, and then I'll feel bad that I mentioned it. Um, but uh, and uh, the, the uh, um, you can follow me on Twitter, David A. Goodman on Twitter. Uh, but there's a lot of sort of I do mostly write jokes on Twitter. Uh, so uh, <laughs> if you don't li if you don't like off-color jokes, uh, don't follow me on Twitter. Uh, and uh, um, I think that's probably that probably covers it right now. Uh, oh, uh, in May, uh, I did last year. I wrote a uh, a Lego Batman movie. The the guys who do the Lego video Batman video game used all the had access to all the sort of computer program to create Gotham City, and uh, we wrote a, a little straight to DVD movie that's a lot of fun and cute for kids. It's fun. So, uh, and I'm very happy if you're a fan of that stuff. It's fun. Well, that's very cool. I am a yeah. I'm actually a huge fan of that, and uh, because they've done the same thing with the uh, Star Wars Lego, and they've right. been hilarious. And so I'm very actually excited. I've been watching and waiting for the Batman one to come out. So I'm excited to know that you were a part of it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I wrote it. It's great. You've been yeah. Have you seen the Have you seen that trailer online? Is there I have. Trailer? It's hilarious. Oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I'm very excited. Great and it looks great. I think it will be released in May. Excellent. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on. Um, 
I'm, I'm very thankful that CBS saw uh, this idea and, um, you know, brought it to you because I think it adds so much to Star Trek right now. Um, there's been kind of a lack of, of this kind of thing for the Prime Universe for a long time. And Chris and I have even talked about it. We would really love to have the uh, episode guide and the behind-the-scenes guide for Enterprise uh, because there's been nothing like that. Yeah. I think that yeah. the market... Unfortunately, the market for those kinds of books is really dried up. Like that, that used to be, because because people are buying online and people are, that they're, they're they they don't have you know they don't sell those kinds of TV books anymore because so much of that information is available online. I mean, you know, when Mark Secree wrote uh, the Twilight Zone Companion, which was one of the first TV books, there was no way to get any of that information about. The Twilight Zone, you know, the way he did that episode guide, really, I think, almost created a genre of book. And, uh, you know, the Star Trek books that came out then, you know, but was, unfortunately, the internet kind of makes those books not as profitable as they used to be. Be sure to go and bug CBS about these Enterprise Blu-rays and have them bring you in to do some creative oh, they commentaries. Did. They did, thank you. No, I, didn't, I don't know Excellent. that I did. I didn't do any commentary, but they definitely interviewed me for them and uh oh, I, I think they'll i think they'll be they'll be good yeah they didn't use me on the, the commentaries uh, for the originals but um, okay yeah i'm looking forward to that that's excellent yeah yeah well thank you so much david we really appreciate your time um and of course oh, everybody go out and buy federation first 150 years from amazon uh so just pull that up and get a copy of that you will not be sorry yeah, go grab that because, David, we really hope that we'll be able to see the, the future beyond, you know, the Undiscovered Country and, and into the up-to-date now in a second book. So I hope people pick this up. Well, thank you, guys. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Well, Matthew, that was a wonderful opportunity to talk to David about not only this book, which is a fantastic piece of creative work, but also, all that background information on Enterprise was brilliant. Uh, you know, you and I both love Enterprise. I don't care if some people don't like that show. I love it. And it was really interesting to hear some of the behind the scenes there. Well, I mean, definitely. And Chris, as we learned in that interview, not only do I love Enterprise, but I love Precious Cargo. So take that, people who don't like Precious Cargo, because it's funny and I like it. <laughs> well as picard says in the closing of our show every week to each his own matthew so there you go <laughs> let's tell everyone where to contact us if they'd like to share their thoughts on today's show any of the news their thoughts on federation or enterprise if you want to talk about that as well you can go to trek.fm contact there's a form there that message will come directly to myself and to matthew you can find us on Facebook, where we have a very rapidly growing community, and that's at facebook.com slash trekfm. And you can always find us over on Twitter under username trekfm. Now, Matthew, what if people want to find you on the interwebs? Yes, well, of course, I'm all over uh, Trek FM with the book reviews, um, Doing uh, reading through a new book right now by David R. George III, so that'll be coming out soon. Um, and then, of course, you can also find me on the Twitter 
uh, Matt Rushing zero two, uh, trying to tweet there about things like Star Trek and sports ball and all those kind of uh, interesting things going on in my life. Or maybe not so interesting things. So it's up to you. But uh, I hope you will follow me. Give me an at reply. Let me know you're following me. And, and we'll enjoy talking things like Star Trek or Enterprise, Deep Space Nine. In fact, any of the series. Absolutely. Give give Matthew a follow there. And if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's Brian with a Y. And you can find me pretty much anywhere in the social media world under that username. And I'm always tweeting about Star Trek, of course, sometimes about my personal life with the Star Trek twist, sometimes photos of Kirk Bear getting into all kinds of shenanigans. And like Matthew, sports ball, Japan design, all kinds of things. So give me a follow over there. And while you're online, drop by trek.fm and check out some of our other shows. We have 11 shows on the network now uh, covering... Everything from general Star Trek discussion to series-specific shows. Matthew and I do The Orb together as well. That show is all about Deep Space Nine. We had a wonderful conversation this week about Benjamin Sisko as an emissary, an ambassador, and an apostle. And uh, you can find all kinds of fascinating stuff there at trek.fm. And also, we want to thank everyone for leaving us ratings and reviews in iTunes We really appreciate it. We love hearing from you, and it helps people find the show in the mysterious inner workings of the iTunes store. Well, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, we'll say, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.